2: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am your host, Lisette Baron-Carvajal. Today, I'm very excited because I will be talking to Dr. Smart of You, Scepter Torici, and Adam Warren about their fascinating edited book titled Baptism Through Incision. The Postmodern Caesarean Operation in the Spanish Empire, published by the Pennsylvania State University Press in 2020. Uh, This book is part of the Latin American original book series edited by Matthew Restel. So welcome, Martha Sepp and Adam. I'm so excited to have you here today.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us.
2: Yeah, it's wonderful. So I'm so excited uh, to be talking to you today because I admire your work. This book, but you know previous things you have published. Uh, you're very influential for my personal work. So I'm so excited to be talking to you today. So I would just like us to start and kick off the conversation by talking about your personal trajectories. Our listeners will always like to hear more about your personal background, why you decided to study history, where are you currently teaching Uh, how you came to your chosen region of study and particular research interests. Please please tell us more about yourself.
3: Great. So I I think I'll start. I'm Martha Few. I'm a professor of Latin American history and women's gender and sexuality studies at Penn State University. Um, I guess I came to um, be interested in Latin America and at first Mexico. And my family moved from Western New York to California in middle school. And I began to encounter... Latin American culture and specifically Mexican culture more, more broadly. And so I began taking Spanish. Um, I have not had a, relatives who lived in Southern Arizona. So my first trip to Mexico was to the border town of Nogales, Mexico, and um, became very interested um, in it so much so that I, I studied Latin America in college. Um, in terms of wide study history, I guess I had a more of a general background uh, uh, both at the BA and MA level in Latin American studies, because it was hard for me to actually pick a pick a specific discipline and I was just interested so broadly. Um, but I ended up um, focusing on history and became interested particularly in Guatemala because of an exchange program I did uh, to Quetzaltenango and uh, the highlands of Guatemala. And that kind of uh, helped shape my focus um, on looking at kind of issues that uh, Maya, indigenous Maya uh, of, of Highland Guatemala and Central America um, faced under colonial rule through different kinds of lenses like gender and sexuality, uh, medicine and public health, and, and also um, now environmental history and human animal studies.
1: So I'll go next. Uh, my name is Adam Warren, and I teach uh, Latin American history in the Department of History at the University of Washington, Seattle. Um, like Martha and like Zeb as well, I grew up in California, and uh, growing up in California was really crucial to the development of my intellectual interests. I, I began to study Spanish in middle school in seventh grade and grew up in a fairly diverse part of California uh, and was um, exposed to, to, to Spanish and to the, the, the cultures of many different parts of Latin America. Um, as an undergraduate at the University of California, Davis, uh, I gravitated towards anthropology and Spanish as my majors, but the best professor I had as an undergraduate was Charles Walker. A historian of Peru in the Andes, and uh, Chuck introduced me to archival research, which I loved, uh, and hired me as a research assistant. And after a year of uh, participating in a study abroad program in Spain, it became clear to me that I wanted to do something with my life where I would continue speaking Spanish and get to travel. Um, in 1996, I ended up traveling to Peru with Chuck and with a study abroad program. Uh, And I spent two months in Cusco and became hooked on um, all things Peruvian and found Peru fascinating and wanted to study it in more depth. I was fortunate to then go on to a graduate program in Latin American history at the University of California, San Diego, where I studied with Eric Van Young and Christine Hunefeld and Dane Borges and did uh, a dissertation on Peruvian burial practices and ideas about health and the body in the late colonial period. Uh, As a professor at the University of Washington, that dissertation became a book uh, that is about uh, medical reforms and colonial politics in the 18th and early 19th centuries in Peru. Um, I've long been interested in ideas about disease and health and notions in the late colonial period of how medical reforms could be used to transform uh, populations and increase population growth uh, in the Andes. And from there, my research has gone in a variety of directions. One of those directions is looking at the history of reproduction and childbirth. Um, I've written elsewhere about the postmortem cesarean operation and about the history of midwifery. Uh, And I'm now doing more uh, modern stuff on uh, the history of science and indigenous populations in the Andes. Uh, And thank you so much for inviting us. I'm really thrilled to be here.
0: Um, great. So, so I think my experiences echo quite a bit um, those of both Martha and Adam. So again, this is, this is Zeb. Um, I received my PhD in colonial Latin American history um, in 2010. Um, And I'm now an associate professor in the Department of Spanish and Portuguese Languages and Literatures at New York University. And as Adam just mentioned, I I too was raised in California, um, born in San Diego, and always had a sort of proximity to uh, Mexican culture and Mexican history um, that very much inspired me to want to learn Spanish, you know, at the elementary school or I guess junior high, high school level. And it was really when I got to um, University of California, Los Angeles, Angeles as an undergraduate, that I began to take uh, a couple of history courses and decided to supplement both my my language and historical knowledge with a study abroad program at UNAM, which is the the National Autonomous University of Mexico, um, in 1998. And it was really that experience that that solidified my my desire to to learn so much more, um, not only about Mexican history, but about this long and, and deeply complicated relationship. Between Mexico and the United States, um, and very much predating that, thinking about the, the introduction and imposition of Spanish colonialism, both in what was known as the Viceroyalty of New Spain, but also in Latin America and other parts of the, the world as well. Um, and so much of my research, um, and this is part of what I think connects the work of Martha, Adam, and myself, um, my research has, has focused a lot on questions of the body, gender, and sexuality in the colonial period. Um, so my, my dissertation and first book project were looking at the histories of the sins against nature, um, largely sodomy and bestiality, in colonial Mexico um, that delved me into hundreds of inquisition and criminal trials. But as part of this research, I, I began to take note of the ample number of criminal trials that related to the topics of, of women's pregnancy and sort of policing the bodies and the gendered um, behaviors of pregnant women in the colonial period. So I, I began researching, you know, dozens of criminal trials related to abortion, related to infanticide, um, related to the question of miscarriage. And um, while those topics didn't make their way into my my sort of dissertation and first book project, they very much kind of conditioned um, the things that I have been looking for in the archives since then. So it's a really nice, I think, point of connection between the historical work on healing and medical cultures and practices and gendered sexuality by Martha and Adam um, and myself. So so I'll stop there. And I just wanted to say, I think, from the three of us, um, thank you so much, Lisa, for um, this invitation, and it's a really wonderful opportunity, and we very much look forward to, um, you know, just chatting with you about uh, baptism through incision. Thanks.
2: It is truly my my honor to have all of you here, because I, I kid you not, listeners, their, their work is so important for all of us that are doing history of medicine, history of the body, history of disease, of healing, you know, in Latin America. So it's it's just true honor to have you all together here. Um, so we've heard all you've worked in different institutions, you specialize in different regions, though you have a very interesting connections in your backgrounds, right? I, I was very interested that all of you like went to this study abroad programs and that sparked your interest in, in Latin American history. So, But how did you meet? Um, how did you decide to uh, come together and edit this book? What's the story there?
0: Um, Great, yeah, thank you for that, that question. Um, I'll jump in and just say that, um, you know, our, our interactions and I think scholarly engagements go back um, probably 15 or so years. Um, the three of us, I think, met each other in or around, and, and Martha and Adam, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, um, but I believe it was kind of ethno-history conferences. So the, these annual conferences for the Society for Ethno-History. And back in 2000, I would say five or six, ish Possibly 2007, um, but Martha and I had had having previously met at, at other conferences and began to talk about our shared research interests. Um, and I had met read uh, Martha's Martha's first book in some of my graduate seminars at UCLA. Um, but we, we began to really sort of think about what it would mean to to think about um, conceptualize and try to write histories of animals in the field of Latin American history in ways that um, kind of challenged some of the anthropocentric underpinnings of the very archives and records that we use to think about animals in the very first place. Um, so, so back at one of these ethnohistory conferences, we had organized uh, a panel on, I think, transatlantic animal histories and cultures um, of which Adam Warren was one of the presenters. And we you know loved the paper that he put forth for that panel. Um, Martha and I both presented at that panel. And this was really sort of the current to that first um, collaborative book project that uh, Martha and I co-edited uh, and for which Adam is one of the, the chapter authors. And that was centering animals in Latin American history. So I'll stop there. We have other sort of interesting overlaps and points of connection at the John Carter Brown, um, as well as in Mexico, Peru and Guatemala. But I will leave that to Adam or Martha.
3: And I'll, I'll go next um... Yeah, uh, Zeb and I had some really great conversations at the ethnohistory conferences, various ones that Adam was also a part of around animals. I had also um, been on a number of panels or um, been part of invited workshops with Adam because both of us for a long time were the only ones working on postmortem caesareans in colonial Latin America. So anytime there was something involving um, those kinds of thematic issues, Adam and I uh, were were, um, there to represent Latin America. Um, And so so we we had had an ongoing conversation about that. And I had found an earlier article that he had published one of the few works uh, published on that for colonial Latin America. And so we just sort of, as we got to know each other, we were also on other panels together as well. Uh, both all of us, all three of us at various times have been research fellows um, at the John Carter Brown Library. Um, And so all of us were familiar with their collections. And so I think each of us had come across what became the center of this uh, book we're talking about today, Bath, Prison, Through Incision, which is Pedro José de Adese's postmortem cesarean manual that was published in Guatemala in 1786. So not only did we have this sort of longer um, kind of intellectual engagement with each other and each other's work but also we were familiar with, through our own work, uh, with this text that became an important part of Baptism Through Incision. And that also um, made us think about um, moving on to what our our larger project now is, which is going to be a a broad monograph looking at transatlantic um, and uh, global history of postmortem caesareans, which we'll talk about a little bit more later in this podcast. Adam, do you want to add anything?
1: Sure, I'd be happy to. So I don't have a a lot more to add. But I would just say that I think I met Martha in 2005 at the meetings of the American Historical Association in Seattle, and probably met Zeb about a year later, and was really grateful to be invited to collaborate on their edited volume on uh, animals in Latin American history. Uh, and I think over the years, what we realized uh, meeting at conferences and workshops is that we work really well together and could uh, really thrive engaging in a collaborative project. And I think it was in 2013 at a History of Medicine conference in Northern Ireland where uh, Martha and Zeb raised the idea of me coming on board to uh, join them in doing this project on the RSA text, uh, what has become Baptism Through Incision. And from there we applied for uh, fellowships from the John Carter Brown Library and the American Council for Learned Societies to make progress on this project. And I'm grateful over the years to have had the chance to think alongside these two scholars and learn from them.
2: Yeah, I love this collaborative project. It's, it's such a great example for those of us younger scholars that are like looking for examples of things to do. And, and I think it's great that you all bring your uh, knowledge from different regions and you build uh, this wonderful book. So let's talk about this book. So to, to give our listeners a little bit more information, Baptism Through Incision is part of the Latin American Original Series, uh, a collection of primary source texts edited by Matthew Restell with the Pennsylvania State University Press. And these sources are translated into English, um, usually for the first time. So most of the series so far has focused on the early church and the spiritual conquest of Spanish America in the 16th century. But this volume, this book, brings the series into the 18th century to explore the intersection between faith and science. And you do this with with the text, uh, A Medical Treatise, uh, written by Pedro José de Arrese, And this text is translated by Nina M. Scott, Um, She's a professor emerita at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. And, you know, this book presents the translation of this book alongside other uh, translations of excerpts of a wide range of of texts that also deal with the post-mortem cesarean operation. And we will talk about those other texts later. There are medical treatises, scientific and political journals, medical instructions, and among other things. for those listeners that are wondering about uh, about this type of medical re- religious text, uh, tell us what what is this? Because I've talked to friends that are non specialists, and they are all very surprised. Uh, so, what is this text? Why was it written in the second half of the eighteenth century? What were some of your initial reactions when you first encountered this text and this sort of policy? Surrounding post mortem caesarean operation in the Spanish Empire, and, and why translate this book, these medical treaties, and, and collectively?
1: So, this is a really great question, and I'd be happy to start. And then, uh, Martha and Zeb, uh, please feel uh, welcome to chime in. So, this is not your usual text about the caesarean operation. Uh, most of us think about caesarean operations, and we think about the modern procedure that is used uh, regularly uh, when in often quite normal childbirths to remove the fetus from the womb uh, surgically, Uh, this is a different kind of use of the cesarean operation. It is a procedure in the 18th century that was performed when the uh, woman who was pregnant had or suspected of being pregnant uh, died prior to or during childbirth. Uh, The goal of the procedure was to extract a living fetus and um, then use holy water to baptize the fetus and thereby cleanse the fetus of the original sin. So this is a text that um, the RSA text and the other texts we engage in this volume are texts that are about using the technology of surgery to further the process or the project Of salvation through baptism. Um, It's a a kind of text that appeared in the 18th century that advocated using medical knowledge um, in the interest of furthering religious and spiritual goals and addressing theological concerns. So this was a means, the the post-mortem cesarean operation was a a surgery advocated within the Catholic Church, um, both in Europe and the Americas in the 18th century, to essentially enable Uh, priests and others to baptize the unborn and thereby save their souls. Um, Zeb and Martha, would you like to add anything to this?
3: I'll I'll be happy to just add a a few things. I also just want to add to Adam's, I think, very clear description is that this is very much a a procedure of colonialism. It takes place in a colonial uh, part of a a colonial state. It takes place on colonial bodies, especially women's bodies and and unborn fetal bodies. Um, And it's very much um, kind of, centered around extending the reach of the colonial state to regulate uh, female wombs and also uh, unborn fetuses. Um, Again, as part of this religious project, but it's also part of the political project of uh, that kind of intersex religion and politics of creating uh, new kinds of colonial subjects uh, at the end of the colonial period.
0: Yeah, thank you. Um, and just to jump in a little bit more um, about this particular um, text and sort of the subjectivity of the author um, and the structure of the text, which is, I think, uh, another really important component to this story. Um, but Arese's text, and this is one of the things that I personally love about it, 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 it was written in a structure of a sort of question and answer formats. Um, so the author, poses a series of questions for um, the presumed reader, and then um, that same author provides answers to many of those questions. Um, so really, uh, you know, and, and the other interesting thing to sort of note about Arrece is, is his writing style. Um, this was a, a, you know, a priest in Guatemala who clearly had um, ample knowledge of the post-mortem cesarean operation um, in terms of theological literature, in terms of um, the the criminal proceedings that would arise in places like colonial Guatemala around miscarriages or abortions or infanticide. Um, But he's also an author that didn't write in sort of the highest register of, of scholarly academic writing. So he has this sort of everyday um, and quotidian nature to his, his writing that makes sort of reading it um, a slightly different experience from reading other, um, you know, deeply theological or medical texts from the time period. So this is one of the things, one of the characteristics that I find personally really interesting about it is that, you know, Arese is invested in disseminating no- forms of knowledge that, as Martha and Adam just just pointed out are deeply um, colonial and and inherently problematic but in disseminating and, and spreading around, um, you know, both within Guatemala, but outside of colonial Guatemala, um, knowledge about women's bodies, about the necessity of performing the post-mortem cesarean operation. Um, and this just brings me back, um, You know, I think you, you ended, uh, Lisette, your question with asking us, why did we choose to translate this particular text versus so many of the other texts we could have, and why did we want to do this um, collectively? Here I just wanna offer a sort of uh, shout outs and kudos to our translator, um, Nina M. Scott, who really spent um, a lot of time working through through and and struggling with some of the challenging um, phrasings and and terminology of Arese. But I think, you know, to get to the collective nature and the collaborative aspect of, of this research and why Arese in particular, you know, we or I personally re-encountered this text at the John Carter Brown Library, I believe when when Martha and I were there for, for um, not on fellowship per se, but I think we were just there for a short event And the idea of of translating and making available, which is what the Latin American Originals book series seeks to do, translating and making available to non-Spanish speakers, uh, this particularly fascinating and problematic text I think was was very appealing for a number of reasons. Um, first, uh, given that Martha had worked in such a sustained way on colonial Guatemala and healing cultures and practices. And I think the same with, with Adam's scholarship. Um, for the regions of the Andes, and I think for us to try to make sense of, of Arrese's text, um, we really have to set it in a larger colonial, transoceanic, and hemispheric um, contexts, which I think is really why um, the three of us collaborating with with different areas of expertise um, in colonial Mexico, in colonial Guatemala, and in the colonial Andes. Um, for example, with different linguistic um, expertise, and working with a, a formal, um, excuse me, a professional translator, um, Nina, who had previously translated a lot of uh, very difficult to translate texts, um, colonial uh, era texts from Spanish to English, all um, you know made this project, more interesting, helped us make much better sense of Arese, how it would have been received, how um, how it circulated, and to really sort of see how Arese is is one smaller puzzle piece of a much larger story that we're n- now trying to tell with this this larger um, collaborative monograph project that, that Martha just mentioned a few minutes ago.
2: Yes, wonderful. And uh, there's so many things Uh, in the in those answers Uh, so this is sort of a frequently asked questions kind of kind of book right Uh, uh, for our listeners so they can imagine it and it is as a Spanish speaker and I'm a native Spanish speaker I I saw the I mean the translator work was was so well done I was I was I I could have never like I'm I, I speak Spanish right but it 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 was so great to see both things simultaneously because there's so many choices that a translator must make uh, that are so difficult. Um, so this this text is also useful for Spanish speaker, I would say, because uh, I, I certainly learned a lot by looking at both texts together. Um, so let's let's move on and talk a little bit about what you said, uh, what you were saying. Um, by the end, which is this broader context. Um, and this book is great because you provide readers a broad uh, kind of contextualization that explains the emergence of this text. Um, so you you speak in the book about uh, transatlantic enlightenment culture. So I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about, about that. And also about, I mean, other things that you mentioned in the introduction. Uh, you mentioned too... European friars, one Spanish um, named Antonio Jose Rodriguez and an Italian one Francesco Cangiamila. Um, you're not talking about them, so you're trying to decentering these European sources, but but there is a broader context, right? So uh, there is a history in of, of in the medieval and early modern period about the Caesarean operation. So what is that broader? Uh, context and uh, that longer history.
1: Great, I can take this one if that's all right. Um, So so first, Lisette, I'm thrilled that you enjoyed the translation. And I would say that one of the great benefits of getting to work on this project is that I learned so much from Nina about translation. And and, uh, Martha and Zeb and I tackled some of the other texts that are included in chapter two and translated them ourselves and uh, realized the sort of monumental challenges of the task and are grateful for ne- to Nina for, um, for all of our help on that. Um, So to answer your question, uh, we talk in the book about uh, transatlantic enlightenment culture. And this is something that we have engaged in other scholarship elsewhere. Um, Transatlantic enlightenment culture refers to the new ideas and scientific and medical advancements that circulated broadly across the Atlantic, uh, especially during the 18th and early 19th centuries, during the final century of Spanish colonial rule. Um, So these are works written by physicians, uh, intellectuals, natural philosophers, theologians, uh, individuals who were engaging new practices of inquiry to try and make sense of the world around them. We organized this book against the idea that was longstanding in scholarship in the history of science and medicine, that the great advances in uh, those fields emerged in Europe and then spread to parts of the Americas, Uh, We are interested in looking at the, in a sense, the production of the Enlightenment on both sides of the Atlantic. So this is something that Martha has done uh, brilliantly in her, in her other monograph, her second monograph on the history of medicine in colonial Guatemala, where she reconstructs the uh, larger world of Guatemalan physicians and other uh, healing practitioners and the ways in which they generated new knowledge within a colonial context. Um, I've also engaged these questions in my own research and my first book on the history of medicine in late colonial Peru, uh, looking at the uh, at how physicians and others uh, tried to imagine the reform of medical practices in colonial society, and what we show in these works and in Baptism Through Incision is that colonial societies were vibrant centers of knowledge production that rivaled uh, what was taking place in in Europe. Uh, now, in the case of the cesarean operation, what is interesting is that um, you mentioned Antonio José Rodríguez and um, Francesco Canjamilla. These were two friars in Europe who published works in the uh, 1740s that proved influential in different parts of the Spanish colonies. Their work built on a much longer medieval and early modern literature about the, uh, the use of the cesarean operation. But in the Americas, figures like Arese are borrowing from Rodriguez and Canjamila, and also at times writing against them, and developing new knowledge that they see as, uh, in some cases, contradicting or building upon what uh, Rodriguez and Canjamila had posited in their own works. Um, So I don't know if Martha or Zeb would like to add to any of that.
0: Um, yeah, uh, thanks so much, Adam. Yeah, I would love to just jump in and speak a little bit to some of the um, the larger historical genealogies that Adam just um, drew our attention to. Um, so Lisette, I think your your question is, is a great one. And you sort of ask us, what explains the emergence of this type of text? And, you know, how and why is this particular text so deeply 18th century um, in its its sort of production and its constitution and dissemination? So I think, Again, these are fabulous questions. And, you know, Arrese's text, um, I'm going to go back to another moment you asked a few minutes ago, Lisette. Um, I think you you asked if we had been surprised by the presence of some of these texts. And I, I will just say personally, even though I had read some of the key, and there, there is not a lot of scholarship, but some of the, the little scholarship that does exist on the 18th century practice of the postmortem cesarean operation, I am still nonetheless surprised every time I come across a religious medical treatise or manual like this one, in part because um, I think as Adam and Martha's comments uh, led us to this 18th century understanding of the caesarean operation in so many ways differs from present-day understandings or perhaps more secularized understandings of the caesarean operation with the primary goal of saving the life of the fetus. Um, So as Adam mentioned a, a few minutes ago, you know, the primary goal of these 18th century texts was to extract the fetus um, from the womb of a deceased would-be mother in order to baptize the fetus. And there was little to no chance that this fetus would then go on to survive. So in so many of the cases and records and texts we have been looking at, we find all sorts of contradictory information about how long the fetus lived up until the point of baptism or following the moment of baptism. Mm -hmm. And, And all of these sources um, have certain degrees of reliability and degrees of unreliability um, behind them. But let me just really quickly trace out um, a little bit, going back to your question about these, you know, transatlantic Enlightenment cultures and the earlier historical genealogies. But Arrese's treatise really forms part of this much larger um, historical genealogy of 18th-century medical texts through which knowledge of obstetrics miscarriage and the post-mortem cesarean operation spread not simply from Europe to the Spanish Empire, but as Adam points out, um, spread a- around the globe and around um, the Spanish colonial world in a sort of multi-directional and polyvalent way. And that's really what we're interested in, in tracing out here. Yet, so many of the texts that Arrese is in dialogue with are these two key um, Spanish and Sicilian um, authors and writers, Antonio José Rodríguez and Francesco Candiamila. Um, but some of the earliest mentions of the caesarean operation itself come from very old and ancient texts from places like ancient Rome, um, Indian sort of medieval uh, Indian, Jewish, and Islamic texts that would often broach the topic of the Caesarean operation, but not to do so in a way that's that made it singular. Um, So these discussions were always kind of worked in to broader texts on, um, on medicine or on anatomy and the body. Um, and as as we sort of move from I, I will say you know the, the twelve and thirteen hundreds up onto the eighteenth century, you begin to see with increasing frequency texts that are dedicated solely to the question of female pregnancy, or solely to the question of even the topic of abortion and the cesarean operation. So you have you know well I, I could go into a dozen of examples, but I, I think I'll, I'll spare us of some of those, but. You you know, in uh, I'll just say, in, in for example, the context of sixteenth century Spain saw a proliferation of surgical manuals, many of which would discuss the postmortem cesarean operation in one way or another. Oftentimes, in a larger um, discussion a- around. Pregnancy, childbirth, and the question of miscarriage. So you get all of these fabulous texts from the 1550s, from the 1600s, and really in some ways Arese and some of the shorter texts that Martha, Adam, and I have translated for the second chapter of the book are, are, are in some ways almost... I mean, we can, we can compare them to these earlier texts by Canja Miele and, and Jose Rodriguez, which are several hundred pages uh, long. And the text of Arrese and some of the other Latin American texts, though not in all cases, they are produced with an eye toward uh, simplicity of understanding and easily disseminating knowledge and spreading information about the need to perform uh, this operation on on pregnant women who are deceased. Um, So all of this, I think, factors into what we in the book are calling transatlantic uh, enlightenment cultures, which I think, again, goes back to the scholarship of Martha and to the comments that Adam just made about this not being a unidirectional um, imposition of say science or medicine, you know, into the colonies, but rather a multinodal um, way of producing histories of science that are deeply invested and deeply embedded in colonialism and colonial trajectories um, at the outset.
2: Perfect. And this is listeners, this is the kind of things you will learn when you read the book because there's it's kind of crazy. It's a very small book, but there's so much you can learn when you're reading it. So so I, I know many listeners will, will go after this interview, they'll be fascinated and they'll go and buy the book. <laughs> but maybe now we can talk a little bit more about the specifics of, of Guatemala, right? And, and Pedro José de Rece. So as you tell us in 1804, King Charles IV of Spain enacted a royal order mandating the post-mortem cesarean procedure in all of Spain's dominions. Um, however, the Audiencia de Guatemala in 1785 had already enacted a law mandating post-mortem cesareans for all deceased pregnant women and even those suspected of being pregnant when they had passed away. So this really makes sense uh, after you, you know what You've been explaining to us that you really are are fighting against a very uh, diffusionist model that assumes that Europe produces knowledge and and Latin America or other regions simply adopts uh, and then translates or reproduces, right? So this kind of difference in in temporality already signals something important. So it wasn't only Guatemala that had this loss passed before 1804. So what was happening in Guatemala, in particular, when Arese's text was published in 1786. And who was he and why did he write this, this uh, frequently asked questions kind of treatise? Great, I think I'll, I'll jump in here. Um,
3: we don't know a lot about Arese. We do know that he worked for the Guatemala's archbishop uh, and he acted as a secretary and helped write different kinds of um, religious writings for the archbishop. In Guatemala at this time period, um, but we don't know a lot about his his background, and just in thinking about Guatemala in the late eighteenth and early nineteenth century, sort of what kinds of things are going on. Um, I think uh, just that that discussion of a kind of broader, kind of transatlantic or even global Enlightenment culture, where. There's lots of exchanges of ideas and also the production of those ideas that aren't necessarily one way or diffusionist or, but as Zeb said, multinodal. Um, Guatemala is also kind of actively participating in these these broader enlightenment cultures um, in ways that, um, you know, as someone who works on Guatemala, people will say to me, I didn't really know that Guatemala had an enlightenment or participated in the enlightenment culture this time period. So they had things like they had a number of um, printing presses at the time and a number of uh, publishing houses, and so works could be published by Guatemala, natural philosophers, medical doctors, scientists, and as well as publishing European works in Spanish um, translation. Guatemala had an Enlightenment-style scientific society that was very active in both kind of experimentation in various kinds of fields like medicine and agriculture and the economy, um, as well as um, Having contests that kind of promoted, that came up with a sort of social or medical problem, and and ask uh, people to to present their best ideas for how to to deal with it, with would come along with a cash prize, and the best work would be published by one of these presses. Um, we can also, I think, see why Guatemala at this time period, and and this kind of also reflects Guatemala is not unique. Mexico also begins to conduct postmortem Caesarean operations in this time period, as does Peru and other places. But we can also kind of see the late 18th century, especially with the post expulsion of the Jesuits in the 1760s, we begin to see, um, I think, a, a secularization of the church and an increasing role of the colonial state in sort of regulating and monitoring the church. And Baptism has always been important, um, but I also think that um, baptism kind of in this, this idea fits into the way that uh, baptism could be kind of recreated or even extended um, further um, into people's bodies, into um, women's wombs and, and into to fetal, fetal bodies. Um, I also wanted to say that one of the things that's interesting about Odese's text, but also advocates um, speak to this for Peru specifically as well, is that he kind of took these broader ideas of Mila, of Rodriguez and other works that he read, but he adapted his writing not only kind of to be clear and for maybe a non-specialist audience, but he adapted it to to local contexts of what's going on in Guatemala. So anticipating an, an especially large indigenous population um, that was sort of tar- the target of readership of this would be priests, for example, ministering to indigenous communities that might not necessarily speak Spanish, but spoke one of the 20 plus Maya languages um, that might take place in contexts like mission communities and things like that. Um, And so we can see it kind of being, again, the sort of I keep mentioning it's a very colonial project and in that way it is. And so you see, for example, reference to the kinds of materials that could be used to conduct the postmortem cesarean. Um, The the woman's body would be laid on a petate, which is a Mesoamerican style woven reed mat um, that's very specific to this area or the different kinds of materials that could be used in a pinch to baptize an extracted fetus if, If holy water wasn't available, Um, I'll also say that where we see caesareans, postmortem caesareans actually taking place, um, we see them taking place largely on indigenous women's bodies, especially in colonial contexts. Like um, some of the one of the translated pieces that we have in the third section of the book speaks to and describes a series of postmortem caesarean operations. That took place in the aftermath of, a, or in the middle of a smallpox epidemic outbreak in the mission communities of the Paten region in northern Guatemala. Um, this is an area of colonial Guatemala that had only recently come under Spanish colonial rule when the, the last Maya kingdom was militarily defeated in the late, not until the late 17th century. So this is very much a frontier area where there's a, a mission communities like Petén, um, as well as a military fort. And so we have one of the priests from this area writing to Guatemala's newspaper, the Caseta de Guatemala, describing uh, this is series of post caesareans that he either conducted or observed being conducted um, by priests and and also by um, an unnamed indigenous barber on indigenous women's bodies as part of this, this epidemic. And so, um, so it gives us kind of these clues, not just the handbooks, but also including some excerpts from uh, materials that we do in the third section of actual that reference actual postmortem caesareans really kind of contextualize it and and kind of um, within this sort of setting of issues that are important for Guatemala in this time period. Um, Adam and Zeb, do you want to add something?
0: Um, yeah, I would love to to just jump in and say, um, you know, part of what I, I find really fascinating about the RSA text is exactly what um, Martha just kind of pointed out, right? The, the connections and the ways that it is simultaneously a deeply colonial Guatemalan text in terms of some of the cultural references, um, some of the topics, the specific um, historical and geopolitical context – but also very deeply um, uh, global and engaged in much larger and much longer historical conversations about women's bodies, about pregnancy, about miscarriage, abortion, um, baptism, etc. cetera. Um, and one of the, I think the, the most fascinating things uh, for me, both for baptism through incision as a sort of short book project for the three of us as editors, um, but also for this larger project that we are now working on, are are trying to tease out some of those um, global connections. Um, part of what we have been finding, and I think this is a really interesting um, sort of impetus behind this larger book project, is that there is this 18th century uh, proliferation of medical, religious manuals, um, sometimes of handwritten instructions of newspaper articles in places like the Mercurio Peruano or the Gaceta de Guatemala or the Gaceta de Mexico that speak. Um, increasingly to the necessity of, of performing the post-mortem caesarean operation. And we actually have relatively little evidence that the post-mortem caesarean was carried out to the extent that authorities and priests would have wanted to, um, to have been carried out. Um, so really trying to think about what we um, thus far are seeing as a little bit of an archival imbalance in in relation to this vast and growing literature focusing on the need to perform the postmortem cesarean and the fact that in actual archives and baptismal records and death registries we ha- have been really struggling with a, a sort of needle in a haystack type situation where we will look at thousands sometimes of of death record entries or baptismal records and find no references or occasionally one unambiguous reference to the cesarean operation or to the postmortem cesarean operation and the other part um, you know, speaking to Arrese as a specifically colonial text that is embedded in a much larger uh, colonial and kind of global story, is is that as Martha Adam and I have been searching for and looking for other texts related to the postmortem cesarean operation. Um, I think I could speak for the three of us that we've been a little bit surprised and really encouraged by some of the things that have popped up. Um, we're working, for example, with an 1862 text that was produced, uh, printed in Manila. It's a printed, uh, printed book that was published only in uh, Cebuano or the Visayan language of the Southern Philippines. And this is a text that we were able to work with prof- a professional translator to translate into English and it's just been absolutely fascinating for us i want to read the title you know martha adam and i we could not even access the title given that the three of us don't don't work on colonial filipino languages but the title of the book we can already see part of just in the title we can see so many of these global and simultaneously local points of connection so this this Filipino um, Cebuano text from 1862, you know, the front page reads, quote, duties that should rightfully be fulfilled and committed to memory by all men of right reason, to be followed strictly and completely in the matter of opening up of women dying of pregnancy, in the assistance to infants deemed dead, even if they are alive, and in baptizing those infants with or even without recognizable human form. Finally, with information all about baptism, a baptism that all be science should know um, with le- necessary licens- licenses, Manila, 1862. Um, so this is just one example of a global text that fits clearly, but in complicated ways within the scope of, you know, what is the colonial Spanish Americas? What is the colonial, um, you know, global Spanish empire? And how are we seeing tech Texts and archival iterations of the postmortem cesarean operation pop up in really surprising and unexpected places. Um, and the final point again, this goes back a little bit to what uh, the issue Martha just raised about. Translation and the translation of something like the cesarean operation to indigenous uh, Maya communities in a place like colonial Guatemala. Um, but another sort of component of this larger project that that we have been working on is really working through bilingual um, Spanish mm-hmm. and Nahuatl, Spanish and uh, Yucatecan Maya, Spanish and Quechua for the Andes uh, confessional manuals, catechisms, and other religious texts, to get a better understanding of how indigenous peoples throughout the Americas conceived of childbirth, conceived of pregnancy, um, conceptualized uh, the the growing of the fetus within the womb. And these other uh, sources and genres of records, we no will not have the answer to giving us the meanings you know behind how the postmortem cesarean was understood or experienced say among nawa speaking nawa speaking communities but rather offer us little bits and pieces and clues to a much larger puzzle and i think you know for the three of us to make sense of Arese's text and the post-mortem caesarean operation, even in you know, the relatively localized context of colonial Guatemala, we really have to do this, this much broader, um, I think both archival, discursive um, search for references to ideas, popular ideas, um, scientific ideas, uh, religious, moral, theological ideas around childbirth, um, the pregnancy, uh, fetal death, baptism, etc.,
2: Wonderful. So, I, I mean, I think our listeners will want to learn more about Arres' text because there's so many interesting features of it. Uh, uh, there's a, b- a blurry line between what is thought to be abortion and infanticide. Uh, there's a different conception about how, how, how long can a fetus survive after uh, the mother-to-be dies, for example. Very very different ideas of what we uh, know today to be true, for example. So listeners, go and check out the book so you can learn more about Arese. But uh, now uh, we can talk about those other texts that are translated, partially translated in chapter two. So this is the point of your book, right? There's there's this proliferation of other, of other books, other texts, other instructions. And you've been talking about that a little bit, but I, I, I would like that you talk about this more uh, for our listeners. Each of you kind of translated uh, different different parts, different excerpts. So you have texts from um, Spain, from colonial Peru, from colonial New Spain, from Alta California, from Guatemala again. So do you want to speak about this text a little bit? Uh, I don't know. I was fascinated by some of them, particularly by uh, Francisco González Laguna's medical treatise because this this was written in the context of a, of a local rebellion, um, so it was very targeted to that context. Um, tell us a little bit about those other texts that you've found and, and partially translated in that second chapter.
1: So I'd be happy to tackle the question about Francisco González Launa. Uh, so- As a historian of Peru, one of the things that I've really learned through this project is that what was going on in Guatemala in terms of enlightenment, uh, medical scientific culture was quite different from what was taking place in Peru. And when it comes to the question of the cesarean operation, local political context mattered a great deal. So in Peru in the early 1780s, there were a series of uprisings in the Andean highlands, uh, the Tupac Amaru Rebellion, the Tupac Atari Rebellion, and the Chayanta Uprisings in what are today Peru and Bolivia. Uh, Francisco González Laguna in 1781 published a work called El celo sacerdotal para con los niños no nacidos or pastoral zeal for for the unborn children and this work was a medical theological treatise or medical religious treatise on the need to perform the caesarean operation that was prompted by events that allegedly took place during these uprisings in the Andean highlands. Uh, The Tupacamaru, Tupacatari, and Chayanta uprisings were uh, rebellions uh, in many cases where indigenous and mestizo rural peoples were up in arms and fighting in some cases in opposition to colonial rule. And González Laguna was a priest in Lima who was moved by stories arriving in Lima from the Indian highlands of a particular rebellion in which rebels allegedly in the process of slaughtering uh, their Spanish opponents and and other opponents in a village named San Pedro de Buenavista took women who were pregnant and allegedly sliced open their bellies to remove the unborn children and thereby prevent the village from reproducing. Uh, Francisco González Laguna saw this as an act of barbarism whether it actually took place or took place in the form that he describes in the text is is very much in doubt. Uh, this, these are colonial texts and this is a colonial text that obviously discredits the behavior of indigenous people in the Indian highlands and is problematic in that sense. But González Laguna, you positions that event as the impetus for publishing a medical theological text on the obligation of priests and all other members of colonial society society to learn to carry out the post-mortem caesarean operation and in practice uh, fetal baptism as part of their duty as subjects within the Spanish Empire. Uh, In this story of the battle in the Andean highlands, uh, the story ends with the village priest walking among the slaughtered people uh, to find those who have been uh, those those fetuses that had been removed from pregnant women's wombs uh, and he baptizes them and so gonzalez aguna in a sense, positions the post-mortem Caesarian operation through this tale as part of the larger project of, of evangelization and religious conversion that forms in a sense the, the justification right of Spanish colonialism in the Americas. And he argues that uh, priests and surgeons and others should view the post-mortem Caesarian operation as a way to fulfill their spiritual duty and convert those who have not yet accepted Catholicism in the Andes. So this is a a very different kind of text than what Arese produces in Guatemala. This is a text that is organized around questions of, of spiritual urgency. Uh, in the context of war and rebellion, uh, and the tone of the text reads quite differently from the tone of Arès's sort of question-and-answer approach to writing. Uh, so to me, this was a fascinating contrast. Uh, what's also fascinating about it is that González Laguna's text was published in 1781, uh, but after the publication of his text, to our knowledge, there are no cases of post-mortem cesarean operations and fetal baptism carried out in the Andean highlands. Uh, the uh, parish records that we've examined so far for Peru and Bolivia contain no cases of of births or deaths marked by, by phrases indicating that a cesarean operation was carried out. Uh, the very few Uh, accounts of the postmortem cesarean operation that were published in newspapers in Lima. The only account that I can think of off the top of my head uh, was an account from Tucumán, Argentina uh, in the 1790s. So one of the things, Zeb mentioned these kind of archival imbalances, one of the things that we're trying to figure out for the larger project is why it appears that the postmortem cesarean operation and fetal baptism were carried out in Guatemala and other parts of New Spain in Mexico. For example, uh, but weren't carried out in the Andean highlands. Uh, and I think what baptism through incision does in the second chapter is invite the reader to think about these differences through excerpts, uh, translated excerpts of texts like like González Laguna's uh, pastoral zeal for for the unborn children. So I'll stop there. If Martha and Zeb would like to add anything,
0: um, yeah, I would. I would. Uh, thanks so much, Adam. Um, I would love to jump in and just speak a little bit about some of the texts that I translated for that, that sort of final chapter of the book. And these were a series of late colonial uh, newspaper entries from the, the, the Gazette de Mexico or this late colonial Mexican newspaper called the, the Gazette. And I would say from, from the years of about 1794 to 1826, um, so, so really over a, a thirty year just over a thirty year span, um, we've been able to find some thirteen printed references to the post mortem caesarean operation that were printed in in several of these newspapers. And I think these you know the inclusion of these brief newspaper references, you know, really help flesh out um our understanding of not only how the practice itself spread, but how knowledge uh, of the practice and the operation itself was disseminated. So, so one of the really interesting sort of points of connection that we find between the gaceta de Mexico and I think the Gazette de Guatemala um, articles that were published around the operation is that they invariably laud the operation and those individuals, whether they're medics or priests or midwives or simply laypersons that carried out the operation. So there's, again, this this celebratory tone behind all of these printed articles, um, which is clearly not uh, natural or objective, but it's part of the discursive strategy on the part of authors and the Casate de Guatemala, excuse me, Gazeta de Mexico and Gazzetta de Guatemala, um, you know, uh, publishers to really convince individuals that this is a practice that is worthwhile um, carrying out and that the chances of baptizing a fetus that otherwise would not have made it into heaven are, are very good. Um, you know, the medical realities of such a, a post-mortem cesarean operation raise all sorts of other questions. Um, but I'll just, I'll, i just, I want to read maybe an excerpt from one of these Gazeta de Mexico articles. And as Adam just mentioned, and I think Martha as well spoke about the, the ways that it's, it's largely on missions that are populated by indigenous peoples in places like Guatemala, that the, the necessity and need to carry out this operation is so strong. Um, given the newspaper articles from the Gazzetta de Mexico, we see something very similar. It's not a coincidence that the vast majority of these articles come from missions in sort of the northern or their southern most regions of the Viceroyalty of New Spain. And we find examples like this one taken from the Gazzetta de Mexico on May 29th of 1799 that comes to us from the mission of Santa Clara in, in Nueva California or New California. And it is these two priests Friar Josef Yader and Josef Vignals that, quote, verified the cesarean operation on a pregnant Indian woman of eight months, according to the records, who was weakened by a violent typhus fever. Their ignorance of anatomy, their lack of medical books, and their never having seen a similar operation performed were not sufficient to frighten them in their envisioned enterprise. Um, and then the author goes on a few sentences and says, um, you know, the goal of this is, is the effective desire to eternally unite with God, the creatura, who otherwise would forcibly perish into sin. Um, End quote. And then this author goes on to sort of say how, um, you know, by the forces of evil, this criatura or this infant passed away on the same day as, as the birth, but that the operation was performed to the resounding success of both the Catholic priests and the local community. Um, but this is one of those records that I think raises far more questions um, than it answers. And it's fascinating for for us to sort of think through the ways that these priests in a a Northern California mission in the the final year of the 18th century are representing and depicting native peoples as having a sort of inherent ignorance to anatomy, a lack of medical or scientific knowledge, et cetera. So these deeply um, problematic and colonialist tropes to sort of frame indigenous peoples and indigeneity and therefore, the need for Spanish priests using Canjamilas' Mila's text and using, um, you know, Antonio Rodriguez's text in a mission context, in a colonial space, are, are really just fascinating in terms of us trying to make historical sense of the operations. Um, A final component I really wanted to draw out of the Gaceta de de, de Mexico entries is that we see this again and again and again. The idea that the indigenous communities or the indigenous um, women. uh, on whom this practice or this uh, the, the cesarean operation itself was carried out were oftentimes shocked, if not horrified, if not thought of this as, as a kind of inherent desecration of the body. But again, what's, what's really interesting are the kind of discursive tropes that come up in these newspaper articles that are, again, deeply problematic, deeply colonialist, um, and that portray native peoples and especially indigenous women as somehow receiving the light brought to them by spanish priests um by the sacrament of baptism etc so um, with with that i'll, I'll just sort of ends but um you know i guess one final point i didn't want to raise i mentioned the term criatura and this is a real crucial term uh, to the book baptism through incision and to the larger historical and cultural and, and religious and scientific construct of the Cesarean operation. Um, this word "criatura," which which means um, you know, it, it, it can mean creature, but it can also mean. Um, a fetus or an infant either inside or outside of the womb. So we see this term criatura being brought up again and again and again in the newspaper articles, in the religious medical treatises that we're looking at um, and in several other genres of documentation. But this is one of those terms that I think gets to the trickiness um, and some of the methodological challenges of thinking about translating cultural concepts and religious concepts and medical concepts. Um, you know, for Martha Adam and I, as editors of the Arese book, and Nina Scott as the translator of Arese's text, we opted not to translate the word creatura into, say, fetus or into baby or into um, infant. And we think that this, this, um, th- this larger, I would say, semantic ambivalence that adheres to a term like criatura is actually very helpful in allowing us to, to really try to understand the ambivalences with which this operation was, um, was carried out and disseminated uh, you know, throughout uh, the Spanish colonies. So I will stop there.
3: If I could just yeah just, just jump in as well to kind of add to um, what Adam and Zeb have uh, explained um, for the two sources that I translated for this section, I think it kind of gets gets at the question of the practical aspects, like how do people learn to to do this and and uh, to, to perform a post mortem cesarean? Um, as we mentioned, with essays, text the target isn't um, can include medical doctors, but it's really um, written more broadly to orient. Um, uh, a priest who might not have ever picked up a scalpel before or a midwife or um, a non-university um, trained doctor to actually perform uh, a post-mortem cesarean in what may be quite difficult contexts of um, uh, where a woman has died in childbirth or some other kind of medical emergency. Um, and so uh, one of the pieces that I translated were some medical instructions that the president of the Audiencia of Guatemala um, commissioned after Odese's Um, manual was published and he directed um, three medical doctors at the university of San Carlos, which had a medical school, um, in Guatemala City um, to write up clear medical instructions dis- targeting sort of non-specialist audiences and it really goes step by step um, of here's how you position the body um, on the floor here's you might need to bring light um, to see what you're doing and here's some if the, if the woman has died from an epidemic disease um, one of the things they suggest is you spread they spread mercury on their hands before performing the post-mortem cesarean operation to sort of protect themselves, to put put a barrier um, uh, uh, so that they too don't come catch the disease as well. And then we can kind of see the, the, uh, and these were um, medical doctors wrote up uh, medical instructions, and then these medical instructions were copied and sent to all of the important towns and cities across uh, the Audiencia of Guatemala. And we can actually trace where they went and when they were received in the archive. So you can kind of see these connections as well. And then we can kind of see the practical outcome of this from the article uh, that I translated from the Cassetta de Guatemala about the series of postmortem cesareans that I referenced earlier that were performed in mission community in in the Paten in in Guatemala, where it wasn't medical doctors like sort of university-trained medical doctors who performed the postmortem cesarean. But in um, one of the cases, it was um, an indigenous barber who somehow was taught or read the instructions or was taught by somebody else or observed a postworm caesarean actually taking place, as well as um, priests who are ministering to populations there who could. So the idea was that, um, I mean, I, I, uh, I don't have like the smoking gun that said they read these instructions and performed it, but there's some sort of way that the kind of actual practical way of how to do it was kind of being transmitted as well in language that, that non-specialists could use to, to perform one as well. And so I just kind of wanted to kind of stress that as well, because this is in getting at what's going on in Guatemala. We see these how-to manuals, targeting non-specialist audience as part of a broader um, sort of public health effort in Guatemala in this time period of medical instructions that are written by, including some of these same doctors that wrote the postmortem cesarean instructions. They were also authoring how-to handbooks on um, how to introduce the new technologies, at least for Guatemala, of smallpox inoculation and vaccination and sort of how to perform them in Highland indigenous communities. And actually in a number of these anti-epidemic campaign manuals, um, we see specific references to the postmortem cesarean, e.g. that they should be carried out if a woman who's pregnant should die from smallpox or typhus or another disease. So you can kind of see that sort of double circulation of both like the manuals themselves, but then you can also see it being referenced in um, anti-epidemic uh, manuals that are being carried into the field by by public health officials as well.
2: Wonderful. And here we, we get a glimpse of the work of that second chapter, right? We're, we're seeing connections, but we're also seeing differences between, between locales, between different contexts, between different practitioners. Um, so listeners, there's so much material there that you can go and and just read and learn much about, right? Um, so, I mean, I think there are a lot of topics uh, that we still haven't been able to to talk. But this is an opportunity to to discover uh, those topics. For example, I mean, this has been alluded to the fact that there are not that many recorded cases. Uh, but this is all the the questions that this this book invite us to think about. But before I let you go, uh, because I've already taken too much of your time, I'm wondering about about the present, right? Because I think for a listener that is not familiar with, uh, I don't know, colonial Latin American history, maybe they're wondering, you know, the cesarean operation has, has changed so much in the past. 200 years, as you say in the book, by the second half of the 19th century, it was portrayed, the Caesarean operation, as a sign of medical modernization and not a part of a religious movement. So this signal a shift in which performing Caesarean operations on living women kind of became the norm. Uh, rather than the exception. And it was meant to save the life of the women rather than baptize a fetus. So I was wondering here Barry, a, a very basic question. Why do you think uh, a listener grounded in the present? Why do you think it's important that they know this longer history? Why is it important to to learn about the connections between science and religion, let's say, for example, or the history of these medical religious treatises? What What can you tell our listeners about this?
1: I could take a first uh, shot at this if, if others would like. Um so I'm I'm really glad you mentioned that case that comes up at the end of the introduction said cuz it's an interesting one on the we we discuss articles that came out in the 1970s in Guatemala that celebrate the 100th anniversary of the first cesarean operation performed on a living woman in Guatemala and it was an operation that was successful in both saving the Life of the woman who was pregnant and her child. Uh, I think you know that the contrast between that case from the 1870s in Guatemala and the earlier ones that that we look at in in baptism through incision speaks to the broader changes that happen over the 19th century as the cesarean operation. Goes from being, in a sense, a tool of empire and colonialism, and a tool of the Catholic Church specifically. It's the Catholic Church and members of the Catholic Church that are are really campaigning to require the post mortem cesarean operation um, as a tool enabling fetal baptism at the end of the eighteenth century and the start of the nineteenth century. Uh, where you have In the 19th century is a shift from that form of the post-mortem cesarean operation, and it's that kind of thinking about its purpose, to one in which the performance of a cesarean operation on a living woman is a reflection of a country's medical modernity, right? So, celebrations of the first cesarean operations performed on living women, not just in Guatemala, but in Mexico, in Chile, in other parts of Latin America, were... Uh, written about in, say, the 1870s and 1880s as triumphs of a, these sort of the, the triumphs of a professionalizing group of physicians and surgeons uh, in these, these expanding nations, right? And it was a way in which these were, were operations to, to be celebrated as a reflection of their expertise and their progress as a community of professionals contributing to, to the larger nation. I think in terms of the, the kind of the why does it all matter question, uh, Lisa, the other way I would answer is in terms of how we think about the Caesarean operation uh and how we think about the the uh abortion politics now, right? So the the cesarean operation is a operation carried out very frequently um especially in some Latin American countries like Brazil. And the longer history of the cesarean operation can help us understand and help explain the proliferation of the the practice today, right? So I'm thinking here of Cassia Roth's wonderful uh, recent book, A Miscarriage of Justice, Women's Reproductive Lives and the Law in Early 20th Century Brazil, which examines the the use of the cesarean operation and other kinds of surgeries on pregnant women by a, a growing and emerging medical elite at the turn of the 20th century. It's an outstanding book, and I think our work can help contextualize what is taking place in that book. And then I think going back back to the 18th and early 19th centuries can help us also understand these debates that are so prevalent in society today and so problematic about questions of when does life begin, right? Um, Canjamila, Rodriguez, Arese, Gonzalez Laguna, uh, Ignacio Segura, all of the, Francisco Sarria, all of these religious figures who wrote in the 18th and early 19th centuries about the post-mortem cesarean operation we're making arguments about fetal ensoulment, about when the soul came to be lodged in the fetus. Uh, and the necessity of baptism was about the idea that the fetus already had a soul uh, by the time that pregnancy went wrong um what our work can show and what the the final pages of our introduction show is that these kinds of debates that continue today are in a sense constructed ideas about life and about the soul that don't match the longer history of thinking about the nature of the fetus and the nature of pregnancy. So one of the things that our work can show when juxtaposed with these earlier, early modern and medieval uh, texts that mention the Caesarean operation that Zeb has noted, is that this idea that, that life begins at conception that's so central to the policies of the Catholic Church today, is not a long-standing position held by the church, but rather is a, a more recent product of historical forces. And if we go back before this period, we can find moments where there were very different notions of of when life began or when the fetus came to be ensouled. And our work sheds light on a period where figures on both sides of the Atlantic are making arguments about uh, ensoulement in really crucial ways and in ways that are fundamentally tied to empire and colonialism. Um, So I'll stop there. I don't know if Martha and Zeb would like to add anything.
0: Um, thank you. I, I think your your the answer you just gave Adam was was comprehensive and really beautiful. So I'm not sure what what more I can add. Um, aside from saying that one of my takeaways from this this baptism through incision book and also the larger research project that we are working on now is is really seeing. Um, and, and Adam just sort of gestured to this, but seeing the, the malleability of the historical meanings behind certain terms and concepts that in certain moments, um, and I'm thinking of a very strong kind of pro-life movement in, in certain places, whether it's in the United States or in places of Latin America, tend to bolster their arguments around these sort of Permanent and unchanging and fixed ideas of, say, the fetus or of insolment or of uh, a pregnancy, et cetera. And what I think, and Adam's comments again, I'm really just sort of repeating in, in many ways, but I think really this project invites us to challenge those long-duree understandings of of such ideas um, around you know that the fetus, pregnancy, etc., and to to realize that each of these terms and these concepts are so deeply rooted in their own um, local historical contexts. And that even the Catholic Church, as Adam just just pointed to, you know, if we go back a few centuries or uh, millennia, we find very, very um, different and oftentimes conflicting definitions of when a fetus gains a soul or of when it's it's becomes a sin or a mortal sin um, to carry out a miscarriage or to have an abortion on things like this. So, you know, a a final kind of takeaway that, that I'm really struck with is that as we move from the 18th century to the 19th century in Latin America, there is this seeming, seeming um, secularization of the process of the Caesarean operation. Um, and by this, what I mean is that the 18th century, as we've talked about, there's this proliferation of deeply religious medical texts that focus on the postmortem Caesarean operation and the need um, to baptize fetuses or recently born fetuses. By the early to mid-19th century, um, so much of this, this religious language. Drops out of some of the scientific and medical knowledge that's being produced. Um, we've done research uh, collaboratively in in places like Colombia and in Brazil, and um, aside from Mexico, Peru, Guatemala, and I've been really struck by the the almost exponential growth of medical theses that are being produced in places like Colombia and Brazil in the 1840s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. Medical theses that are dedicated entirely to the topic of difficult childbirths, or specific conditions that women undergo during pregnancy, or specific treatises on the cesarean operation. And almost all of these um, medical theses are devoid of any reference to sacraments, um, to baptism, to spirituality. um, But I think it would be too simple of a story for us to say that the cesarean operation simply becomes secularized as we move from, say, the 18th century up into the 20th century. Um, so I think I think you know a, another part of this project again is really asking us to pay close attention to local constructions of meaning and local historical context to really understand the religious motivations behind not simply the post mortem cesarean operation or the cesarean operation as we move forward in time, but also kind of the the moral policing that accrues to these forms of knowledge. And this takes me really briefly directly back to uh, the text of Arese. Um, So a huge section of Arese's text focuses on how can you differentiate between a a willful uh, abortion that a woman has procured um, voluntarily or what is known as an aborto natural or uh, what we would call today a natural miscarriage. And all of the responses that Arrese and so many other 18th century male religious or medical thinkers like him give point directly back to, to elite and male perceptions of Women's gender and women's sexuality. So there's this really fascinating moment in the Arese text where he sort of hypothetically asks, what causes um, aborto natural or what brings about or causes miscarriage? And in Arese's answer, he tells us everything from noxious airs and bad breaths to tight dresses to women dancing too much on, you know, on a Friday or a Saturday night. Um, but the point I'm trying to make here is that all of the knowledge. That is produced about and around women's bodies in relation to the cesarean operation or the postmortem cesarean operation is filtered and conditioned by and through highly problematic forms of male medical expertise um, that we can also juxtapose with the vast um, practical knowledge of midwives throughout um, all of the colonial Spanish America. Um, so again, I think this just takes me back to to the point that any of the meanings that we are looking for through, you know, this project and the larger projects that we're currently carrying out need to be in many ways deconstructed and thought through historical change, construction and locality versus um, ahistorical or long durée notions of the body, of gender, of pregnancy, of the soul or of the fetus.
3: I'll just jump in here. I'm not sure how much I can add, given how, um, how how Zeb and Adam, I think, really covered a lot of ground here. But sometimes I also think about, you know, when I'm teaching with this text to my undergraduate students in colonial Latin America class or history of medicine class, what, what would I like them to take away from it? And, um, you know, I think this kind of build on what Zeb and Adam were saying, but I, I want them to kind of think about Terms like fetus or terms like criatura or even woman versus mother, right? The choices in the documents that writers choose to use to describe both the people and the events that take place when uh, referring to postmortem cesareans um, need to be unpacked. They need to be questioned uh, and they need to be historicized. Um, They need to be thought about as not unchanging or static categories, you know, as we've kind of mentioned, but as particular to a time and place in this colonial and imperial setting. And so um, and and then I hope that those kinds of skills so that when students are thinking about whether it's abortion politics today or other kinds of issues, when you see these sort of hot button words that get used to kind of not take them at face value, but hopefully kind of dig a little deeper, think about things a little historically and maybe uh, have a little bit of curiosity about how and why they're being deployed and for what purpose
2: I love it I love all of it I think it's so important and i I would love to use this for uh, for teaching I think it would be well it, it would be so useful right um so I, I I thank you all uh before I just let you go just tell us I know you're so you're working on this project uh, this is a bigger project so maybe you can finish off by telling us what, what you're doing right now and what either collectively or, uh, you know, by your own, uh, what are you doing? What are, what are your current projects?
1: Um, Lisa, thank you so much for that question. Uh, so I was really, from from this project, which is ongoing, obviously, and from my earlier research on the history of medicine, I've been really interested in the the idea of medicine and science as tools of empire and colonialism. And I've been interested in the kind of problematic encounters that scientific researchers become uh, entangled in with indigenous peoples in the Andean highlands. So uh, my new project is a, a project that's on the history of scientific expeditions to Peru in the Andes, both Uh, Transnational scientific expeditions, expeditions from, say, the United States uh, in the late 19th and 20th centuries, but also expeditions uh, led by Peruvian scientists based, say, in Lima uh, into the Andean highlands. So I've written uh, a little bit about research in high altitude physiology involving indigenous mine workers and shepherds and peasants uh, who were a part of larger experiments in the region of Huancayo in the, the central highlands. Uh, I've also been writing more recently on the Yale Peruvian expedition, which is the expedition that is remembered for quote-unquote discovering uh, and excavating Machu Picchu. Uh, but what I've been looking at there are the relations between Yale researchers and indigenous peoples whom they experimented on as part of racial scientific research projects and so I'm interested in thinking through not just what is what is the larger history of these kinds of encounters between scientific researchers and indigenous peoples, but also what are the ethics of writing those histories? how should we be writing those histories and what can a larger and really rich body of literature from indigenous studies on sort of the ethics of research and relationality, what can that literature tell us and how can it help us think um, in more complex ways about our work as historians? So that's what I'm doing now. And I'll hand it over to uh, Martha.
3: Great. Thanks for that question, Lisette. I actually have two projects that seem really different, but here goes. Um, I'm finishing a manuscript called Insects in the Making of the New World, where I'm focusing on an insect center approach to the colonial period, looking at uh, five key insects, bees, locusts, cochineal insects, silkworms, and ants, especially swarming ants. And thinking about um, how changes to colonial environments um, brought by colonialism and kind of human remaking of landscapes both facilitated and um, impeded um, the spread of certain kinds of insects. And I'm kind of focusing on a combination of both insects that are indigenous to the Americas, insects that are indigenous um, outside of the Americas, and insects like locusts that were familiar both to people of pre-colonial Americas as well as Europe and other places. And then my work on cesareans, as well as epidemic diseases, um, this previous work has has led me to really think about this idea of trauma and how it was conceptualized um, and enacted and how it was written about and experienced in the colonial period. So I'm at the very, very early stages of this. But I'm thinking of writing a history of of trauma in early colonial Guatemala and Central America, things like uh, the experiences of epidemic disease survivors when most of the other rest of their community or family have, have died, succumbed to disease, trauma from natural disasters like earthquakes and volcanic eruptions, which are Fairly common event in colonial Central America. Survivors of animal attacks, um, survivors of interpersonal violence, um, and also people who experience miscarriages or difficult births and things like that. So, yeah, so that's at a very early stage. But I've just sort of thought it would be interesting to kind of look at things like this that people had looked at before, but through the through the lens of trauma and um, and the medicalization of it uh, in some of these writings that I'm finding.
0: Um, and, and it's great to hear what both of you are, are doing. I've heard aspects of both of those projects, um, but but nice to, to hear um, updates. Um, so I'll just jump in and say I'm, I'm working on a project that is tied and very deeply connected to my earlier work on history of sexuality in colonial Mexico, but moves from the 18th century to about, about the year 1700 up into the mid 1950s. Um, and this is a project that is both a scholarly monograph project and a digital archive that I'm trying to produce, tentatively titled Archiving the Obscene, uh, Censorship, Erotica, and Pornography in Latin America from 1700 to 1955. Um, and I'm really in this project interested in looking at how the concept of obscenity or the obscene shifts in terms of its historical and gendered and political um, construction and the meanings behind this term. As technologies of recording different types of bodies and different types of desires shift over time, um, and just to, to sort of say briefly, you know, in the in the eight seventeen hundreds um, up until the eighteen twenties, you find the Mexican Inquisition has this renewed interest in prosecuting cases of quote unquote pornographic literature, or priests or laypersons who get in trouble for producing or circulating um, either either obscene images or immoral. Um, Um, alms boxes or paintings that, you know, if you look at it in one way, it looks religious, you turn it over the other way and you see a sort of obscene representation or image. Um, And I'm really trying to to couple these these inquisition trials and cases of of regulating obscenity and quote-unquote immorality to medicalized discourse around women and bodies and pregnancy in the 19th century and moving us in the 20th century up to the the rise of both photography and moving Image records. Um, so the, the final thing I'll say is this has also really um, delved me into slightly unorthodox archives, um, in part because most major um, national and university-based archives don't strategically collect what some might deem to be pornographic or obscene literature. So this has really um, invited me to go to flea markets and to old bookshops and to really speak with collectors and dealers, um, books dealers, and thinking through the connections that they have with museums, with archives and archival institutions. And I'm really working with a grassroots um, sort of queer methodological archive in Mexico City known uh, called Archivo el Insulto, who has been doing collaboratively with me a lot of this work of trying to bring materials into their archival collections. And and again, thinking about how do these um, explicit representations of bodies and desires have radically different um, and shifting political and activist contexts behind them when we think about different modes and different stakes at recording and recording technologies from the 18th century up to the present. So um, with that, I just want to say thank you so much, um, uh, Lisette, and also Adam and Martha for what was a really interesting conversation. Um, It's been really wonderful.
2: Thank you all. It was great. And I'm looking forward to all of those projects and having you here and talk about them. Thank you. Thank you to the three of you. It was wonderful. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you.